Welcome to the newly cleansed and refreshed In The Game podcast, where we invite you to transform your dreams into reality. Every week, we aim to touch, move, and inspire you to new possibilities for your life. My name is Sarah Maxwell, and is it really time for me to now intro my own show? Heck no! Bring in the Aussie talent to get it done. With their groundbreaking first season as The Nat and Sarah Show, the foundation has been laid for a life of manifesting your dreams. Join us as we delve into the nuts and bolts of what it really takes to bring those dream boards into reality. It's time to dust off your dreams and get back in the game of life. Are you a member of the community? Head to Facebook and search In The Game Podcast to download your three-step journal to begin the workshop-style teachings and gain exclusive access to your hosts and featured guests. Get ready to take action on your possibility. Today, we continue the conversation with the first ever female AFL grand final umpire. Chelsea Rafi recounts the goosebump-worthy moment in 2012 when thousands of fans at Melbourne Cricket Ground cheered her on for her presence on the field as the historical female first in sport. She may always have been sporty, yet she started out as an aspiring musician with a scholarship at the Queensland Conservatorium and transitioned into journalism due to her love of language and communication. As a Churchill Fellow exploring social change that enables girls to be authors of their own lives, she's gone on to be a gender and diversity facilitator, a journalist, like I said, a speaker and an author. And it's her experience as a female in a non-traditional domain, however, that really revealed the untapped potential for driving performance through diversity. She's created an online program to help businesses climb out of COVID-19, and it's called, you know, how to attract and retain greater diversity. She seems to constantly be creating new and different ways to contribute to society. So Chelsea, I can't wait to get inside your mind and just learn. Sarah, you've taken me right back to the MCG. You've created these little goosebump moments again for me in that beautiful introduction. Um, that was awesome. Thank That's you. life, girl. And very kind. <laughs> and look, I, what I love, as I you know, learn more about you, you've done so many diverse things. And it had me wondering, like, what kind of kid were you? <laughs> It's sort of funny when, because we use the term diverse and that's sort of, I guess, where I've concentrated my attention these days in diversity and it's all about inclusion and creating the right environments. And it's so easy to get wrapped up in, I guess, the jargon. But when I think about how I have always been um, right through my childhood and, and to in, into adulthood, as well as how I think about diversity, it is about having a range of experiences and exploring what you're capable of through expressing yourself in different ways. And I guess um, as a child, I was very much curious about wanting to try everything, wanting to do everything. And, you know, my mum and dad were the taxi drivers for me and my brothers as we went off to swimming and uh, basketball and athletics and, um, you know, music practice and all that sort of stuff. So um, I guess I've just always had this curiosity about being my best. And that sounds really cheesy. <laughs> um, but, you know, wanting to see um, 
you know, what I'm capable of and push the boundaries a little bit, um, no matter what that is, if it's physical or mental or, you know, learning a bit more about my emotional reactions and things like that. I just sort of, yeah, had this very deep curiosity, I suppose. Do you know, until you just spoke, I never even realized that the word diverse, the way I was using it, is <laughs> in diversity. That's why you're the journalist. Because no, it's, it's well, great. There's was, no issue. Yeah. You know, what I love is like, because later I want to ask you to really dive into this definition of diversity. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's so diverse. So I, it's great. You just link <laughs> that together for me. So um, would your parents be surprised like what your future employment was? Because like how, when you love so many things, how does one thing rise to this the top, like how do you decide to go to the Queensland Conservatorium versus, you know, become a professional athlete, for example? Mm. Uh, well, I guess, look, I probably had uh, aspirations of being a pro athlete. <laughs> I don't know if I had what it took. <laughs> so I think Fair there's enough. sort of this, there's this element where, um, you know, I was, I was, I was good as a kid. I was a good runner. I was a good swimmer. Um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd win trophies and things like that. Um, but ultimately, I think while it's nice to be recognised, um, you know, it's it's also not everything. Winning's not everything, and like I say, I, I wasn't necessarily the national champion or um, at that sort of level. Whereas I think what ended up happening, although I always had this really deep desire to succeed in whatever I was doing, but you sort of get directed in different ways by the people in your life. And I think I had this this music teacher, clarinet tutor. Um, when I was in high school, who was very influential just on my life. I think she was the first person, I think, who really put it to me that I could actually make a living as a musician mm. and to reflect back to me that I would have what it took to do that. Mm. Uh, so probably up until that point, you know, I was, I was learning and practising clarinet and I was really committed to it, um, just as I was committed to sports and academics and all that sort of stuff. But um, she was the one who probably guided me uh, in a way that made me really be able to see that that could be my future. And yeah. so um, to be honest with you, though, I've kind of, I've started talking about this area that I didn't eventually end up in. So <laughs> that's really interesting, yeah. isn't it? Well, um, what was that transition? Because you went into journalism, didn't you, at uni or you did two things at university? So I ended up after I did music. So I left high school. Um, the process of, of getting into the conservatorium is uh, an audition process and you do some testing, um, but it's mainly the audition. And so I think it was in September. I'm trying to remember what time of year. So you actually go through that entire process before receiving your results and, and going through all your test exams for year 12. And so there's got to be this level of commitment, I suppose. Um, and, when, and, and it was a really hard decision for me to make to go, I'm deciding that I want to audition to go to the conservatorium and that's what I want my life to be. Like I really, um, I think I've mellowed over the years as tends to happen, but as, as a 17 year old, 16 year old, I was, you know, it was this incredibly important decision that I would just agonize over. Um, so as it turned out, yeah, you can, you can change your mind, <laughs> but, um, but we don't yeah. know that when we're teenagers, I was one of them. I was intense. And there's this all or nothing, very clear idea that, you know, you have to, you have to get a hundred percent. You have to do this. You have to do that. And 
you know, it can be nice if you can channel that energy, I think, but you need to sort of learn to, I think, just take a step back sometimes and not expect so much from yourself because it can be quite exhausting. But, um, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know where I was headed with that because I can't remember what the question was. But it was the, it was the taking the turn from, yeah, music, right, to, music to journalism. Journalism. And so I finished up um, my music degree. So I got the music degree. Um, and honestly, um, I realised that music was one of those industries where it had to be all or nothing. Mm -hmm. And I thought, do I see myself, you know, I want to be in an orchestra. Um, I want to be in, you know, can I get into the Chicago symphony? You know, who's going to retire and open up a spot there for two clarinet players. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I, I sort of, I probably had a bit more realism come into, you know, the reality of being a a professional musician Mm -hmm. and the reality that I probably would have had to teach um, and that's not what I wanted. I wanted to perform in an orchestra. Um, and I, I guess I just got to the point where I thought, you know, maybe life's going in a different direction. And yeah, I just, it wasn't potentially all or nothing as much as it needed to be. I actually did a year, I had a year of indecision because I, I thought, well, I could use my music degree to do medicine because in Queensland at that time, it was a postgrad course. And um, to be fair, I think there was probably a little bit of this voice in the back of my mind that I, you know, I'd gone into this area with music where you sort of didn't need the academic achievement or the results to, to get in. It was an audition. And I had this thing to prove where I was like, yeah, but I'm capable, you know, I've got the, I've got the, the grades, you know, I can do medicine. I can do the, I can do that. And I was sort of a lot of proving myself. Um, and so I realized I, I, I sat the GAMSAT exam for medicine um, just to see how I would go. So I had like a year in between music and journalism where I did biomed because, <laughs> you know, um, so I realized that, okay, I passed the exam. So I did, I did well enough to kind of tick the box. I didn't get an offer. Um, so I didn't do well enough to sort of be put into a, a med program that year. Um, but I spent a year exploring biomed and there were some really interesting topics that I loved. There was some other stuff like genetics that I thought was just bloody hard. <laughs> um, and I thought, I don't know if I could see myself doing this kind of stuff. I, what I found was I loved the topics where you could debate I love the stuff around ethics um, of biomedicine and, and things like that. And so I think the way that I eventually wound around and getting into journalism was realizing that it was that people focus, the communication side of things that I really enjoyed. And um, I didn't really have to prove that I could do that. And that's certainly not a good enough reason to do it. Yeah, so that was that year. <laughs> funny, the reflection, because um as I, when, when you share those things, you sort of get your own view of growing up. And like you said, that all or nothing feeling, why we make the decisions that we do, how we end up. Yeah. So I related to a lot of that, actually, that little, those twists and turns. And as you look back, you think, how did I end up switching that? Or, Mm -hmm. um, and then all the while, okay. So you were an umpire, you know, you're famous for being this first female umpire of the grand final so you know what was it like to be a female in that environment and was that going on in the background at the same time or did this come after so I started umpiring 
I, f- I had my first taste of umpiring in high school and funnily enough, so I was doing all this stuff, um, the study academics, the music, um, you know, the extracurricular sports and just committed to it all and just burning the candle at both ends. Cause you know, you gotta, you gotta do all this stuff. And, um, I'd always been, our family had always been a footy family, even though, so we, I grew up primarily in Brisbane um, with my brothers. Um, now Brisbane's all about rugby and I suppose, look, they started getting into to Aussie rules when the Brisbane Lions started some, getting some success sort of in the, the early 2000s. Um, so that was a good time to be in Brizzy. But um, generally speaking, you know, footy was, if you were from the Southern States, um, you were a sort of a footy family. And so um, we were always into Aussie rules coming up from South Australia. I realise I haven't probably said that yet. Born in South Australia. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so the boys played footy and one year in high school, this uh, notice came out in the morning notices. They needed a volunteer to wave the flags, which is the goal umpire's job essentially. Um, well, it's, it's a bit more complicated than that. But um, And I thought, you know what? This actually sounds like fun. And it was this thing where I volunteered. um, I was a footy fanatic. We used to follow the Crows when I was young and we'd go to all the Brisbane Lions games. And um, I thought, look, how hard could it be? It sounds like something fun to do on Wednesday afternoons. Wave the flags for the boys team. And I'm sick of study. I'm sick of music. I'm sick of like all this other stuff that was so serious. Hmm. And that was my first taste of umpiring probably a handful of games and then it became a part-time job when I left school and started studying music. So um, what was involved with that was you go, you train a couple of times a week. So it was a great way to sort of maintain your fitness. So even though you're in the goals, you still do um, endurance training and stuff. I'm not sure what the link was there, but it was great to be running around and um, maintaining that connection to sport after school it was earning a bit of pocket money. Um, I used to waitress as well, which I hated. I hated it. Um, but I also then, when I started doing footy at a community level, got paid to be at the football, which was awesome. And um, Were there other females doing it at that time when you were doing it part-time like that? Yes. And I think one of the benefits of starting in Queensland was when I rocked up to training that first night, there were probably, I reckon, probably six other women there and so it was it was kind of no big deal it was you sort of knew you were in the minority but it wasn't that big a deal that you were the only girl Mm -hmm. and I think that yeah compared to perhaps some of the more traditional states um, with very traditional views around what it means to be involved with football and be a decision maker in that area I think there are some really interesting cultural things that happen there Um, and so that was sort of my foray into it it was always this hobby and this part-time job slash hobby and then eventually after about five seasons um it it got to a point where i uh, someone retired off the queensland list um, as an afl contracted umpire and then i've had my opportunity to step up and do you like put your sights on like did you have your sights on that if that came up you would go and then did you also have your sights on being the first female to umpire an AFL grand final, like, or does that, do those things just happen? It became a bit of a stepping stone kind of aspirational process. I think the, my personality type is 
I'm incredibly competitive. Um, and probably it was even more so. I don't know if I'm getting soft or old or mellow or what it is, but you have this kind of perspective with age, I think, that come where you sort of look back and go, wow, I was really competitive then. <laughs> um, and so, but I think the fact that my personality was very driven and ambitious mm-hmm. meant that I think somewhere in the back of my mind, I always just wanted to do the best that I could. Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't sort of at all costs where I was like, you know, extremely competitive against everyone I came across. It was sort of, it was as much about being competitive against myself and wanting to do well in games where, you know, a lot of the skills you learn in umpiring are um, really technical kind of skills. And you're also learning how to manage people and read the play. And um, every decision that you're making really is different. And it's such an energetic and adrenaline charged environment. It's, it's a great way to learn things about yourself. Um, and also you're getting a lot of opinions from across the fence. So you're learning how to deal with criticism all the time. And so for me, that was a really good way, I think, also to understand my own self-perception and things like self-criticism because you've got to learn to balance that a little bit. If everyone else is <laughs> criticising and judging you, you, you sort of start to see with a little more clarity, you know, perhaps that relationship with yourself. Um, which has been a really great lesson. Yeah, that's actually quite, you know, when people talk about social media and receiving like negative feedback, you think about, oh, wow, you had to, like you had screaming fans yelling what, like, that sucks. Yeah. or Like, I don't know, what do they say? Without swearing. Well, you can swear. Well, that's all right. Yeah, no, I won't, no, I won't swear. But you do get, you, you know, there are moments where, yeah, people will just, they call you names and, um, like, I mean, and as you think, God, heat of the moment. Yeah, but hmm, it's ordinary. It's an ordinary situation. Like if you were to take step, as soon as you step outside of that Y line. <laughs> um, but you yeah. know what? This, this podcast is actually called In the Game. And mm. the thing that you just said, I love that comment. I'm going to tag onto it because when you're in the game, you're actually on the field. Yeah. Real stuff happens and you're learning, like you're learning how to deal with it. From the sidelines, we have plenty of commentary, including all those people yelling at you, have plenty of opinions, but to actually be out there, like, I mean, that's what's really amazing. Like you had to figure out ways to deal with that, cope with it, drown it out, whatever you did. Um, Do you think, I don't know why this came to me, but that moment when you ran out on the field and people cheered you on, was the realization of a dream the moment when they were cheering you on or was the game like umpiring the game, the dream, like what part of that would you reckon was the thing? Mm, That's a really insightful question. I think initially it was all about getting there, getting that game Mm. because, and I guess, sorry, I know you asked before whether it had always been an aspiration and I guess just to finish that bit off, I, I think like anything, you kind of start to develop these aspirations because you realise that it could, it could happen. Mm-hmm. Whereas probably in the beginning, when I first was listed with the AFL, I thought, you know, the idea of doing a grand final was, seemed ludicrous. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I was like, I can't believe, but it was like this moment where I can't believe I'm umpiring the AFL. This is amazing. Like, I just, mm-hmm. and so there was this real excitement and sense of honor around it and I just wanted to get out there and and this sense of I suppose proving myself because there was this other element to it where it was this sort of newsworthy item of being being a female Mm -hmm. and so there's this sense of going okay well I'm just going to show them that you know I can do it Mm -hmm. so 
I guess the idea then of skipping forward to getting getting to a grand final, like I think for quite a few years leading up to that, it had been, um, you know, I, I suppose I'd had experiences with colleagues as well, as an example, who, and they weren't the best of experiences. Mm-hmm. And they left me wanting to absolutely, st- like, just stick it up and, like, just go, you know what? I can do this. And I sort of was fueled by a lot of motivation around anger. <laughs> but it wasn't like my whole life was angry, but it was like when I was out on the field, like I was really bringing it. Yeah. And getting to that game was just, um, yeah, it was just the most amazing thing. Um, but then to step out onto the field and realize, and hear people cheer after my, my name was read out was like, oh my God, like it was sort of this next level. I think it was almost like accepting that while I had always acknowledged um, the relevance of being a woman in a man's domain, I never wanted that to be the primary focus of who I was. Mm. I wanted to be, you know, as I think most people do, judged on my merits and and given an opportunity um, based on me as a person, not me as a flag waver for women, Um, even though I care about that stuff. But just stepping out and hearing people get behind me like that, especially as an umpire, was it just took it to another level where I think I was probably willing to accept that that is actually a huge part of my story. And I'm really proud of that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, emotional. I get it. I totally get it because that journey, like you said, you're actually inside of yourself, you're being your best. So it's sort of like, I'm not my best cause I'm a woman. I'm just being my best. Mm. But there's like that beautiful acceptance of people recognizing what's going on. Like when Barack Obama gets elected, you know, and he comes into office, there's the, you are great for the job. And then you as a black man are demonstrating something to, you know, the population. Yeah. So there's like two things. Yeah. 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 That's beautiful how you said it. And I think also there's, there's kind of like this, you can have this awareness of the environment or the culture or, and you being, wanting to be your best, but also having to push up against certain attitudes or that prove it mentality. Um, and there's so much that goes on behind the scenes in being your best in, in op- not necessarily opposition, but just to in that prove it mentality. And it's almost like you, you've got to buy into it just by doing it. Just, I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's, it's sort of like you, you don't really want to, admit that that's a part of your motivator <laughs> but you've got to buy into this argument and this culture that says oh well because you're a female you're not going to succeed in this environment and therefore you have to prove yourself you've got to do all the extra training and you've got to just, you know put all the effort in to make sure that you are you know competing on a stage where you're not putting your foot wrong because you know mm. people sort of jump in and criticize and it's almost like that kind of yeah that tension between not wanting to accept it, but, but having to buy into it. Yeah. It's like a bit of a, it's this cool conversation. It's like, it's like the calling it out because our, our volleyball coach, mine and Nat, we shared a coach and he used to say he was a black American guy mm. who she had for 16 years. And he used to say, he used to call it his chip on his shoulder because he felt that he was representing all black men. Right. And the weight of that Like in Australia is where he kind of released that. And he realized that 
he's so much more than just that title. Um, And yeah, I'm trying to recall a little bit more of what he shared there, but that's what this reminds me of is I used to play baseball, be the only girl. And I remember mom and I, like, it was like, mom was the only mom and we were out there like proving and, and that proving has a cost. I don't know if you felt that, but I remember I, I had a bad back injury in my volleyball career. And I remember thinking, you know, what part of that is carrying the load of proving that I'm strong. Like if somebody said, can I carry your bag? No, I can do it. Like that was, that's just an example of my personality. And so I think with age, like my coach, it was sort of just, huh, does this matter as much as I think it does now? I want to transition this though, because what you've done with it, that's so beautiful is with your Churchill fellowship, you then go, okay, I want to explore this a little bit deeper girls being the author of their own lives. So in your travels, what did you discover about social change for girls? And and what did you discover out there beyond Australia? And then kind of reflect back about Australia. Mm. I think that, so probably the the crux of what I really wanted to explore came a lot down to narrative and and storytelling and I'm I'm going to try not to be too cliched in the phrases that I'm using because I know some of these words are just it's sort of hard to be <laughs> not um not cliched in how you say it but I think yeah and I think it's like storytelling at the time was like yeah everything is about storytelling but for me what I really wanted to understand I think firstly was my own narrative so I'd always been really curious about um the fact that it's sort of like I'd had this whole narrative and story around being you know this female breaking down the barriers and it's always about barriers for a start so that's my first issue (laughs) you know all of this stuff around being more diverse and inclusive tends to have a a narrative that is built around why it's difficult Mm. um and and it's built around the resistance and so I wanted to understand a bit more about what's going on there Mm. Um, and I knew that I could do that through examining my own story and so it was really fantastic to I guess as a journalist as well, it was sort of how can I bring the story to it so that people are engaging in a way that gets them feeling passionate and feel an imperson- a personal imperative to actually make some change. Mm-hmm. So spent some time at Stanford University because they, they study storytelling, which is like the most amazing thing. It's a storytelling project, um, mm-hmm. it's called. But I just wanted to spend some time just examining like the, you know, what is storytelling and how can you utilize, you know, narrative uh, for social change? Um, so that sort of formed the crux and, and I probably to get to your point around, you know, what did I discover? Um, coming back to my, I guess that founding belief of diversity, I, I really, the conversations that I had really lo- looked at diversity from the concept of worldview. So I sort of, when I think of diversity, I'm like, okay, of course, it's going to be age, gender, sexuality, you know, um, race, ethnicity. There are all these things that make people diverse and they're all like the easy labels that we apply. But ultimately, you know, why, why does that diversity matter? Well, it matters because the person at the centre of that label is actually presenting an alternative worldview. So they're presenting a different way of seeing the world, a different way of interacting with the world, um, the relationships they have. And so it's... Hmm. It can sort of be a really, sometimes I think it's, it seems like a really fluffy way to approach it, but 
at the end of the day, I think if I'm having a conversation with a, a man who <laughs> might quite derogatorily refer to himself at the moment as like a middle-aged white guy, like the, the number of men who I meet who go, oh, well, I'm just a middle-aged white guy, as though they just, it's the worst thing you could possibly be <laughs> um, in the diversity space. Um, but I know if I can have that conversation with him around what it means to bring yourself to work or to be treated as having value because of the range of diverse ideas that he might be able to bring to the table. And I'm not saying that, you know, it's about sort of putting middle-aged white guys on pedestals or anything like that. Um, but I think it's, it's having that personal connection with someone on a level where they can see that diversity worldview goes far deeper than what's on the outside. Mm. And so that was a, a real tangent there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in this whole Churchill process, I think it, for me, that was the kind of the founding principle that emerged over my discussions. And, and I had discussions with a lot of people, like I spent time at the Canadian Women's Foundation and they do a lot of really brilliant programs, um, working with girls from um, disadvantaged backgrounds, um, working with schoolgirls around programs such as Media Smarts, where it's learning to cut through some of the, the media messaging that we get. Um, and as we know, you know, girls, particularly around that sort of tween, teenage, um, are faced with, um, you know, issues around body image. And the, these are sort of real issues that can then affect involvement in sports and self-confidence and empowerment and all this other stuff. So through these kind of conversations, um, I was sort of able to consolidate, I suppose, what, what I see as being the founding principle to, to how I want to um, create diverse perspectives and, and use, I suppose, my story to, to leverage diversity and inclusion. Are people open to this in Australia? Uh, look, I think probably yes. Mm -hmm. um, I'm discovering, I, I mean, I think the power of a story can't be underestimated because I should be overestimated. I always get those two mixed up. Under or over? <laughs> Yeah, you can't overestimate the power of the story. I, I think mm. being able to create an experience um, that helps people to empathise or um, to feel what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes, um, if, the more that you can create that experience, I think the more you can open people's minds mm. to um, the fact that they have bias, as we all do. Or, you know, um, look, these are some of the barriers that are operating um, statistically, let's look at some of the data. Um, but I think you've got to find a way in, you know, and stories are a fantastic way to do that. And I think, I suppose the way I've found I've been able to leverage my story is because, you know, there might be someone out there who's like, oh man, yeah, we'll get her in. She's a, um, yeah, I'm in the AFL and they're, I don't know, they're mad for Collingwood or something. Um, but there's a, there's a corporate tie in or there's a, some opportunity and, I think you can, you can often create an experience where people are surprised by what you have to say. So they think they're getting someone who can talk about, you know, what it was like to, you know, umpire in, on Anzac Day. And yeah. you, can, you can use that. Um, but then you end up talking about something completely different, which is, well, you know, what it's like for, yeah, a, a woman in a male domain and, and the psychological motivations of, of what can encourage or discourage women. Absolutely. And I think this topic is really interesting because we all, um, when you said 
bias. I always think about someone who said, we're like fish in water. Fish don't know they're in water. It's only when you get that experience of, oh, wow, you know, maybe I am in water. Like to me, that's what bias is. You just, it's very hard to see outside of it because you're in it, like you're swimming in it. Um, and so what you're doing with your story and opening people up to, to different perspectives is one thing. And I, I just wanted to quickly share that at university, I did Women in the Americas. Is that what it was? Yeah. We, or something political and women. And, and our teacher, she was so amazing. Um, she had us grab out of a hat these scenarios. So she had, sorry, let me set that up better. So four corners of the room, she had um, something like gay, lesbian, bisexual, and maybe transgender, let's say. So we didn't have as many letters at the end of LGBT, you know. So, and, and I, so I've been with a female partner for 20 years, but at this time, no, not even on the radar. So it wasn't mm -hmm. like thinking that I was gay, like there was nothing there. Okay, so that's interesting part of that. So anyway, then we pick out these scenarios out of this hat and let's say 20 students, we all have a scenario and it says things like, um, I've never, I'm a female, I've never kissed a girl, but I've been dreaming about my best friend who's a female. Mm -hmm. um, I, um, I like to go, I'm a male and I like to go into the female, the women's bathroom. And so all these little scenarios. And so each one of us had one. And then she said, okay, timer start, go to which area belongs to your scenario. And everyone was like, oh. So did you have to select the scenario or you just had to pick up and, and read a scenario? Right. Okay, cool. I, So it's like you become the scenario, let's say. Okay, yep. So you go, oh, okay, where do I belong? What's my name? What's my yep. tag? And what we all got was like, firstly, the labels don't even make sense because <laughs> nobody actually knows what they mean. Yeah. And so I really got like this idea that what are the labels? Why do we say them? What do they even mean? I'm getting, I'm going to ask you a question at the end of this, because then when I met my Nat, who, you know, mm -hmm. when I met Nat, I was just so hell bent. And I think I still am a little 20 years later, but <laughs> that I'm not a lesbian. And then I'm afraid to say that because I don't want to offend lesbians, but I think it was more about well, what does lesbian even mean and why am I in that category? And I think you were talking a little bit about female and well, what does that mean? Cause we're all so different. Mm. So um, I bring all that up because what's, what's the real definition of diversity actually? What, what are we really talking about when we want to, boost diversity in like the business space and things. What are we actually talking about with diversity? Mm. Well, for me, simply, it's the value of an alternative worldview. Now that's my, that's how I see diversity. Say it again. Say it again. It's the value of an alternative worldview. Okay. Now, again, I know that's pretty like, oh yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, um, think about that for a sec. Yeah. Um, but what does it mean in terms of, you know, there's so much research out there saying, okay, if you have gender balance in teams, for example, um, if you've got gender balanced executive teams between 40 and 60% male to female ratio, um, those teams are more likely to outperform the industry average of uh, non-balanced teams. Okay. Does that make sense how I actually? 
yeah, refer yeah. to there. Yeah. So if you can have gender balance on your exec teams, um, so that's one way. If you look at that statistic, for example. But when I look at that statistic, I go, okay, but yes, that is that data is true to say that a female perspective matters and we know it matters because you know you can if you're running a business you know you want to uh, be able to appeal to female clients and customers you want to be able to be innovative in the way that you are having discussions and that's um, because you know going through the world as a female is going to be different to going through the world as a male it's, it's just simple it's um, environment social conditioning all this stuff I think adds up to that what I call worldview or perspective. So of course, gender matters, for example, or, you know, you could say that for, for sexuality, you could say, okay, if you are of a particular sexuality, you are, you know, experiencing the world perhaps in a different way because of that. But that doesn't, that's never going to make the whole person or the entire person. Like it's a ridiculous thing to say, you know, that someone would be defined by that. Um, but, but the worldview thing is, is good. I think there's like a, um, when you live on a different line, mm. like there's a different perspective about the world. Mm. And, and what you just said, you, clearly we don't plan these conversations, right guys? No, that's right. Yeah, everyone we're like having realizations as we're talking, but <laughs> I, I was thinking about the, the Olympics with the Paralympians combined into the or sorry, it was the Commonwealth Games actually, where they did that really fluidly. Like the, they, it was the first time the Paralympians were competing at the same time as the able body. And I remember it just felt like there was the two together made both better. If I can say that, because I had been to um, a Commonwealth Games for a, a friend who was Paralympian and it was just those events and i remember being a bit confused like i don't understand what's going on the gradient there's a lot of things that i wanted to understand and then integrating having them all together was so interesting because i feel like it gave this added understanding about able i, I don't even know if these are the right terminologies but able body mm. we were able to see like whoa the nuances and then oh wow you did that with one freaking arm Mm. Or, you know, like, I don't know. It just feels like those are worldviews or ways of looking at the world or feeling the world that are different. And, and I, it accentuated. It was better, like your stat just said. Yeah. And I think it just reframes, it reframes the focus and the discussion. Like, mm. there could be someone out there who loves the Olympics and loves watching sport, but has, has never sort of bothered to look at Paralympics or for whatever reason has not been open to that world. And they might have a view of, um, oh, well, you know, the Olympics obviously is for, for real athletes and, you know, this is the benchmark, this is the standard and here's an event, um, you know, it's a hundred meter sprint, whatever it is. And then potentially have a view around the Paralympic version and going, well, clear, it's not as good or it's not as, you know, it's not real or it's, you know, because it's not, because that's my benchmark. Mm -hmm. But then, as you say, you go and, you know, you're getting this whole insight into what it actually means to um, sprint hundred meters in a wheelchair or whatever the case may be. Or um, I actually went to school with a, with a girl who was incredible. She was a swimmer um, and had no arms. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And I'm like, you don't compare apples and oranges, right? <laughs> and so it's actually, diversity is about celebrating difference. Diversity is not going, well, this is the benchmark and therefore this is, you know, what we 
this is the standard upon which we compare everything else. I think it's having that ability to open your mind and go, well, this is the scenario. This is, um, this is the reality for this person. And it's not better or worse. It's, it's just a different set of benchmarks and circumstances and, and measurables. And I think the more that we're able to kind of challenge the dialogue to, to reframe it a little bit, um, we can be far more inclusive and we can go like, well, how do we want to get more girls involved in sport? Well, maybe it's not all about being competitive or maybe it's coming at it from a different perspective where, you know, we see some great campaigns around, you know, it's, it's, they focus more on, you know, what it feels like to exercise and, you know, mm. the, the mental and emotional benefits that can come from that. And again, I'm not saying that, you know, women aren't competitive because I know women can be competitive. But there are lots of women out there who don't exercise because they're afraid of being judged. They're not interested in competition. Um, and they just miss out on this whole world of, you know, physical movement and camaraderie and, and all the wonderful benefits of sport because they frame it in a certain way or it, it is framed in a certain way. And that was another tangent. But, no, I, but you know what? What I just remembered, there's this really great book called Born to Run. And you know how you're talking about the benchmark. Well, there's a tribe, like this Mexican tribe, that run these ultra marathons. And ultra running is really popular these days. The, that group actually moves the entire benchmark. But their method, like when you were describing some traits or qualities of their training, they are doing it in a completely different way. Meaning the whole book is about the joy of running. And the benchmark, if you're talking about time, they actually do it faster by training that way. So what I'm just thinking is we might try to say that we're comparing apples with apples, but I think that adding difference is actually going to move the whole needle up, mm. you know, and the benchmark will elevate actually, um, overall and i think even in sport where you're thinking it's a time thing and it's this and i'm like you know what i've done enough eastern philosophy to see that you can move the needle and go faster by trying less hard mm. you know like that those kind of philosophies where you go oh my gosh you know our coach was very zen and he used to talk about um <laughs> if you've done something once you can do it again and you know the more we would try to recapture it he would say, okay, well, your muscles are tightening. Your bodies are doing a different shape now. That's why you can't find it. It's mm -hmm. there, but he's like, you're so busy looking for it. And, and these are like very kind of interesting philosophies, but ultimately the, the needle shifts with different worldviews like mm -hmm. that. And it's beautiful. Like that, that's a brilliant reference to the importance of fun or feeling free or perhaps not focusing on the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I know, We've seen it, in, you know, you know, I could in Aussie rules. Um, so Richmond Footy Club, which has had great success over the past few years, it's sort of become well known now that the entire focus from their coach, uh, Damien Hardwick, um, started to shift towards enjoyment and having fun and, and the relaxation that came from that and the sense of trust and camaraderie and I guess all this stuff that happens behind the scenes with training that isn't just, you know, slotting goals and, and getting your fitness up and all of this. It, it was like the missing piece to the puzzle where as soon as there was this enjoyment element brought in, um, the success started to come. And I know, um, you know, fun is actually a, 
it's a cornerstone of, of our AFL values for umpiring. Um, we come up with values every couple of years that we're adhering to through the year. Mm-hmm. And when you don't have that sense of enjoyment, um, I mean, it's almost like, what's the point? But I suppose to get to the, the reason you brought that up to begin with is if, if everyone has got their caps on as to, well, this is what success looks like. And, you know, success is, you know, serious training and it's this and it's that. And there's a very clear structured approach to it. Um, you know, what happens to the person who's going, you know, Hey guys, have you thought about having some more fun? <laughs> or have you, as you say, bring in that, that difference. It's just it will shake it up a bit in order to, to raise the needle. And um, yeah, as you say, I completely agree with, with the point you've just made. Like, um, this is like hilarious. This is a theme now. I'm bringing up um, Michael Jordan's The Last Dance. Oh, how um, good. How good is it? Every, how good is it? <laughs> every interview I'm doing. But Phil Jackson brought in um, Native Indian, um, like First Nations philosophies. And you see the players, like they're doing like burning, like they're smudging and they're doing these like tribal things and yet people go, oh, wow, the winningest team of all time. And, and you think to yourself, yeah, well, that's someone that's bringing in difference. Like he, his acceptance of Dennis Rodman was like just epic and nobody yeah. after could handle Dennis. Like when you read about what happened after 98 and I thought that was one of the most amazing parts of that series, wasn't it? How he actually gave Dennis Rodman like, I see you, brother. Like, I see who you are in this tribe. I'm like, that's amazing. That's amazing. And especially when Den- – I mean, I was really like, okay, I'm, lo- I'm loving Dennis Rodman. I'm loving Dennis Rodman because, you know, just, you know, be yourself. But then so, sort of to see the coach's response to that, you think, wow, that's incredible. And imagine what that's saying. But then even towards the end of the series – sorry for the spoiler if anyone hasn't seen it um, – you know, Dennis is really pushing that barrow. Dennis is going for it. The final episode, he pushes it. Let's put it that way. And I'm like, oh my God, like, how is the team going to respond to this? Like, what is this going to mean? And and still, Phil Jackson is just basically saying to the media, well, you guys are, you know, making a big deal out of this. This is not affecting our team. This is, he was just so strong in that commitment to accepting difference and knowing, he must have known that, you know, Obviously, Dennis is he's delivering on field. Um, the team is is doing fine, um, but to be able to commit to doing something that seems to everyone else to be crazy slash risky, um, I think that's that encompasses diversity because yeah. people see doing the diverse thing or doing the different thing um, as being the risk, but it's 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 the opposite. Um, it's there's a cost to not doing it, um, and you see it in in business, you see it in sport. Um, you know, you've got to have the boldness to do something that is different, particularly if things aren't working the way they are. Girl, we're ending it on, that was, that, no, that was like, boom. Good. That Good. What you said was so amazing. That is not the risk. The risk is not doing it. <laughs> I love this conversation. I feel like I we have just like opened <laughs> up a can of worms. So we need to come back and talk more about it but that was just a boom moment thank you I know and I know thank you and I really hope that that wasn't like a huge mess because like my what I felt like sometimes I was just going I was rambling and I thought oh look I hope this is making sense so I'm 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 hope that you're happy (laughs) very happy cheers
we so appreciate you listening to the show. Don't forget to join the community on Facebook by searching In The Game Podcast. There you can download your three-step journal and participate in our weekly live video chats. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You've got to rate and review the show. And I know all the podcasts are always asking this. And in the past, I wasn't doing it. And the reason I wasn't doing it is because I actually didn't know how to do it. So open your podcast player and click on our show from your library, not the listen now. That's where I was going wrong in the past. So now that you know how to do it, when you go there, make sure you give us a five-star review. Five stars, five stars, five stars. And then click on write a review link to actually write a review so that you can tell other people that we're legit and even funny, maybe a bit serious. So if you want to recommend this to someone, you have to put your fingers on the keys and send us a review.